You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. It's very nice to be here actually preaching in front of real-life people again. Makes a difference. It's actually, it's actually more nerve-wracking doing it with no one in the audience towards a camera, I find. But here we go. Right, so we are in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Let's... Um, just open with a word of prayer, and we'll get into the Bible study this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for the truths it contains. We pray now that you would just open our eyes to see the wonders contained within it. We give your Son the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are looking at probably one of the most well-known stories to people in the Western world particularly, even if you're not a believer. Most people have heard of the Good Samaritan. So why would I want to look at this topic? What new... What, what really new can be said about it. Well, maybe nothing, but what I want to try and do is give us some context for it. Um, It's a fascinating parable, and we'll we'll just go through and see how we do. You may notice, or you may have heard this parable used to support a very wide range of different causes over the years. We'll look at some of them as we go. But my main intention this morning is that I want us to look at the parable with the ears of first-century Israel. So these were stories that were given in a particular historical context, and I want to try and sort of time travel back to that particular context and understand it as the original hearers would have understood it. But just to jog our memories, let's just read the whole portion of the text so we all have the the story in our, our minds as we go through. So we'll start with Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying... Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This is the story. It's not a long story. This is one of Jesus' parables. Now, before we sort of do some exegesis on it from the first century. Let me just talk a little bit about some of the impact that this parable has had today. You may have noticed that the landscape of the Western world in particular, but generally all over the world, is littered with testimony to the influence of this parable, and in particular the main character, the Samaritan. We have organisations that bear their name. In the UK, the largest one would be the Samaritans. You've heard that of that group. They are a suicide prevention uh, hotline. 
Um, they have over 200 branches all around the world. Now, although the Samaritans are not an overtly religious group, they were founded by a vicar in 1953, and his vision of the Samaritans was to provide a sort of like a 999 for people who, uh, who are thinking of suicide. And in December 1953, the Daily Mirror uh, wrote an article about his work, and they coined the term the Telephone Good Samaritan. And that's pretty much where the name came from. They, they liked that term, the Telephone Good Samaritan, became the Samaritans. Uh, there's another organization called Samaritan's Purse. You may have heard of them. These are, this is headed up by Franklin Graham today. It's a, a massive international relief agency. Uh, you probably know them in this country from their Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. Uh, they hit the headlines again recently with their COVID-19 field hospitals in New York and also in Italy. Um, if you go to their website, this is the first thing that you'll read about on their About Us section. It says, after sharing the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus said, go and do likewise. And that is the mission of Samaritan's Purse, to follow the example of Christ by helping those in need and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. In addition to many organizations like this, we have hospitals around this country and around the world that bear the name of the parable. The NHS volunteer program, if you've ever been online and looked at that, that's called the Good Samaritan program. In the UK, on the sort of the legal statute books, we actually have laws that are called the Good Samaritan laws. And these are actual laws that are designed to protect first um, medical professionals who may be off duty, yet they come across an accident and um, the situation was happening that they didn't want to get involved because if something goes wrong, they might get sued. So these Good Samaritan laws were designed to make sure that if someone with the expertise gets involved and it, things do go bad, they're not allowed to be sued. That was just kind of peace of mind to help them to intervene. But they are actually uh, legal laws, Good Samaritan laws. All around museums, buildings, we have sculptures, we have paintings for the National Galleries, Vincent van Gogh and Rembrandt. They've all had a go at illustrating the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've also seen this parable used in a number of moral and ethical applications, most commonly by the abolitionists during the 19th and late 18th century to do with the slave trade. Uh, the Greek scholar Granville Sharp, you may know him, he did some amazing work on, on some verses in the Bible that helped prove the deity of Christ. He was also a, a leading abolitionist of the day, and he wrote one of his essays, which was arguing that, that all mankind uh, must be esteemed as our neighbours when they're in need of assistance, he used the Good Samaritan as his base for that essay. You may remember, or you may have heard of um, the speech that Martin Luther King gave. It was the night before he was assassinated. He was assassinated April 4th, 1968. On April 3rd, he was in a church giving his last, what would become his last speech, and it was dubbed the I've been to the mountaintop speech. Many considered it to be one of his best speeches. The central theme of that entire speech was based around the parable of the Good Samaritan. And his chief point, the question that he raised in that sort of speech slash sermon, was why didn't the priest or the Levite stop to help? And he said it like this. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And this, and you can see obviously how he, he applied that to his current situation in the day. Um, fascinatingly, the Good Samaritan is also a favorite of politicians. 
Now, we are all aware of the way politicians like to use uh, scripture at various times for various purposes. That's not my point today. I just want to show you uh, some of the ways that this has been used. Um, so you could ask, what do Jeremy Corbyn, who has overtly said that faith is to be a private matter, what does he have in common with the very uh, loudly Methodist Margaret Thatcher in her day? And now you would obviously say arguably nothing. They're probably at the most different ends of the political spectrum. But they were both very fond of co-opting the parable of the Good Samaritan for their purposes. Let me give you a little uh, snippet. Jeremy Corbyn, 2015, he was speaking about the welfare system. He says, I want us as a movement to be proud and strong. Corbyn told his newly energized supporters in his leader's victory speech in 2015. He says, I want us to stand up and say, we want to live in a society where we don't pass by on the other side of those people who are rejected by an unfair welfare system. We have four weeks to show what kind of country we are. We know that the people of Britain don't pass by on the other side. Now, although this is only sort of uh, an illusion, but you, get, you see the phrase there, passing by on the other side. This is exactly what the Levite and the priest did. That comes from the Good Samaritan. Now, the Thatcherite Samaritan was a little bit more upfront, and um, he delivered a different message. Margaret Thatcher said this, the point is that even the Good Samaritan had to have money to help. Otherwise, he too would have had to pass by on the other side. Her point was obviously to do with wealth creation, individual responsibility, and teaching people not to rely on the state. You can see pretty much two completely opposite political points being used there by uh, this parable. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, they also followed sort of in the, the Labourite approach to the parable. Um, they cast the British government in the role of the Samaritan. There's a book by a man named Nick Spencer. He wrote a, he called, it's called The Politics of the Good Samaritan. It's actually a fascinating book. He summed it up like this. He said, the travelling Samaritan has become a multi-billion pound British government, stepping across the treacherous financial road and binding the wounds of a damaged and vulnerable public with billions of pounds of taxpayers' money. Again, you may think how we get from the parable to this. Hopefully we can uh, show you that today. Another, Labour MP Hilary Benn, you might remember this, he invoked the, par the, uh, the parable in order to rally support for war in Syria. Uh, his point was obviously that to, we cannot pass by on the other side while ISIS is committing the things that they're committing. Um, that was his point. Trump, Obama, Clinton, all of them have used the Good Samaritan at various points for different moralizing speeches. Nick Spencer finishes his book with this quote, by making everything political, we've ruined everything. Like the Good Samaritan, who ends up as a stand-in just for the most fashionable debates on the size of government, a political problem so far removed from the actual parable that an outsider would have to do considerable study to learn how we got here. And I could go on and on with examples like this, but I just, just forget about the, the way they're being used. That's not my point today. Just for one moment, though, let's just stand back and appreciate and marvel at the fact that one story, in fact, seven verses delivered by a Jewish rabbi on the lowest class of the economic status of the time, pretty much, over 2,000 years ago, has had such influence on the world. Seven verses, just one story. There's no reason why that story should really have had such uh, historic influence in the world, except, obviously, if there is something different about the Word of God and the teachings of Jesus, which, obviously, we proclaim there is at this time. The influence of the Bible is unparalleled. The Good Samaritan, you could make that argument uh, entirely with those seven verses. 
Now, after 2,000 years of sort of theologizing and moralizing, uh, the Samaritan in our minds is associated with something good. The Samaritan hotline, the Good Samaritan, volunteers, everyone helping, you're a Good Samaritan. We have that phrase in our language. But to understand the impact of this parable when Jesus first delivered it, we must try and go back and understand what it would have uh, meant to the first audience. So let's go back now to first century Israel, place ourselves in the historical context of the audience. So we're in Luke chapter 10. Now I just want to remind you that Obviously, all the Bible is inspired, and the placing of particular stories is quite often uh, specifically done for a purpose. This explains one of the reasons why that many people think is a problem with the Bible. In the different Gospels, you sometimes get the narratives and the stories in a different chronological position. Skeptics look at that and they think, ah, this shows you that the Bible's not, uh, not from the Word of God because it doesn't read like a film script on every single different Gospel. It's not the point of the Gospels. The authors were free to use the stories and place them within the narrative context to make different points. That's quite common in ancient literature. This is what happens in the Bible. In Luke chapter 9, he's dealing with missions. And in chapter 9, he turns to the subject of discipleship. He teaches about the authority that the disciples had. He talks about that famous statement, you take up your cross and you follow me, uh, which is for, you know, the heart of discipleship. And then we see the event of the transfiguration. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So this shows us where he is. Now, it's coming up to uh, the end of Jesus' mission, and he's up, uh, and he wants to head to Jerusalem. So on his way to Jerusalem, we, we enter chapter 10. In the beginning of chapter 10, we see the famous episode where he sends out the 70 disciples, and it says, you know, if you're not received, you shake the dust off your feet, you go to the next town. And then on his journey, somewhere in between that event and his way down to Jerusalem, we meet this character that gives rise to the story of the parable in uh, Luke chapter 10. Now, remember that when Jesus is teaching, a lot of the time he's kind of having two conversations. He's speaking to the wider Jewish audience, and he's also specifically speaking to his disciples. And quite often he'll emphasize different points to them. Or he'll, he'll take the disciples aside privately afterwards and explain things to them in more detail. He's teaching his disciples about discipleship here. Now, the Good Samaritan parable is one of three little narratives that come one after the other without any, any gap. They're just straight after the other. And that is very, very important. Usually when you hear the Good Samaritan, it's just dealt with as a separate story you don't know, uh, attention is paid to the stories that follow it. And I think that's a big mistake. You've got to remember, he's teaching his disciples something. He's also answering a question of the, the Jewish uh, person who asks the initial question. But the stories that it's connected with are you know, very important. The first one is the Good Samaritan. This is teaching about how you respond and treat your neighbor. The story that comes immediately after that is the famous story of Mary and Martha. You remember this, Mary, um, Martha was serving and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and there was a bit of um, tension between the two. And then immediately after that, we get the story of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches them how to pray. Now notice these things. They are all connected. How you treat your neighbor is directly connected to how much time you spend with Jesus and how much time you spend with Jesus is directly connected to how much time you pray. All of those three things are connected. If you're not treating your neighbor right or you're having bad thoughts about him, the chances are you're not spending enough time with the Lord in prayer because those things flow naturally from one another. And this is, this is you never really see them 
linked with these three stories. But I believe Luke, the gospel author here, places them in this context to make sure, and it's in a very short, uh, you know, there's not much text, there's nothing that happens in between. These things are just bang, 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 one after the other, because they are related to each other. If you do not love your neighbor, you probably have not spent enough time with the Lord. And we do that through prayer. This is why he says, I'm going to teach you now how to pray. Now, the occasion that gives rise to this particular question, in verse 25, Luke chapter 10, it says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's just be clear, this is not an attorney at law in that sense. This is a Bible scholar, lawyer, an expert in Jewish law, biblical, uh, the biblical texts. This is a, a Bible scholar, a theologian, we would call it today. Now, the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? We think about that probably from our Western context. We immediately think he's asking, how do I get to heaven? Yeah, that's pretty much the, the, what we have emphasized the need. That's not necessarily the question there. I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, what we have here is what we would call a halakhic discussion. This is a Jewish discussion about how to interpret different parts of the law. The context of the parable is thoroughly Jewish. And it says he put him to the test. And again, most people make a big point of this, saying that you, know, you can sense the sort of the, the bad Pharisees. They have this, this motive that's trying to deceive and trick Jesus. Again, that's not necessarily um, what we have here in this parable. This is just so common in in-house Jewish debates that you would try and you would test the rabbis. It's, it, you, know, different, you had different rabbis with different disciples, and one of the things that they did when they come together is they would test each other's ideas. It's not necessarily this sort of devious intention from this person that we, ha that we have. It's just what happens in religious debate. We have it quite... Yeah, the Christ Christian church has the same sort of things in many respects. He tests him. Now, eternal life. Now, again, like I said, we think of heaven, maybe. We think of, does this mean we're going to live forever in heaven? That's not necessarily the primary intent of this question. It's more regarding a quality of life one that is in right covenantal relationship with the God of Israel, that does guarantee your entrance into the eternal kingdom. But it's not just the singular element of how do I go to heaven. It's a little bit more uh, full than that in the Jewish mind here. In verse 26, he says, He said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? This is Jesus' response. How does it read? Again, this is a very common question in Jewish debates. What he's basically asking is, how do you understand and summarize the message of the Bible? Rabbis, you would ask, students would ask, this is how you ask a teacher. It's like someone asking a theologian today, how do you understand this topic? How do you understand this topic? This is what Jesus turns the question back on him and asks in this question. And he gives an answer, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor, as yourself. Now this actually, as it happens, is a very, very good answer. This, this theologian, this lawyer who was asking this question was obviously quite, uh, he, knew the, he knew the Bible well, and he does a very good answer. In fact, this is the same answer that Jesus gave to a similar question in Matthew 22. This is the same answer that Jesus would have given in that sense to summarize the Torah. And what is so clever about it, let me just explain it a little bit because it helps with our context here. He quotes Two scriptures. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, the famous confession of faith of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. And then the second part of it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. 
So it's these two scriptures that are brought together as the summary of how they understand the Bible. And the way the rabbis sort of talked about why it was these two scriptures is they related it back to the Ten Commandments. One tablet of stone had all the commandments to do with relationship to God. The other one had the commandments relationship to your fellow man. And these two things made up the Ten Commandments, which themselves were a summary of the entire law. Okay? And these two scriptures, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19, were then both applied to one side of the two tablets, one with relation to commandments to God, commandments to your brother. And then what they do is, I won't go into the, the technical side of it, but it's a very, uh, there's a method of Jewish interpretation where you take different scriptures that have similar words and you link them together and they become one. And we see this in the New Testament. It's important because you may have read in the New Testament, I think four times it happens, where Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul, and James say that loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. They don't quote the first part. They don't quote, love your Lord your God anymore. When they quote it after Jesus has done this bit of exegesis, all they say is love your neighbor. But in the context, people who are hearing that understand that's because these two things have now been so closely linked together that in order to fulfill Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your strength, to fulfill that, you have to love your neighbor. And this is the point. This is the understanding of the parable. This is why you have this little introduction to the parable. Galatians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, the, that's basically what Jesus has taught. And this, this lawyer here who's asking the question seems to understand this. So the obvious question now is the very one that the scholar raises, and he said to him, uh, what Jesus first says, and you have said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and live. Now again, we mustn't jump to the conclusion that Jesus is arguing or giving a formula for some sort of works-based salvation. That's just not the theological context of this parable. That's our own Western sort of Protestant mindset that would see that in it. That's not the answer. Jesus is basically asking a question to expose a point of weakness in the man's understanding. Again, a very uh, good teaching method. He's basically highlighting the point that although the man thinks he has understood Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor correctly, in fact, he hasn't understood it in the way that Jesus meant it. And then we're going to see how Jesus explains this. Verse 29, the man then says, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And again... This is a realistic question, one that we see discussed elsewhere in rabbinic literature. And it's because the Hebrew term for neighbor does have a range of different meanings. And one of those meanings is a close friend, someone who's close to you. And this is where you can sort of see, because of that, discussions around this topic would often result in people wanting to draw rings around their particular group, um, obviously attempting to sort of limit the command in that sense. Now, these dividing lines may have been ethnic, they may have been religious, they may have been racial. Um, it's sort of an us-and-them mentality that we have here. And we see this sort of thing, that we, humans do this. We see this uh, in the identity politics movement of today, don't we? Where the world is seen through the grid of different victim groups and oppressor groups, and that is how you understand the world. This is a redrawing of these community groups and lines. And I think, obviously, because of that, it actually can be quite destructive. But Jesus here diffuses the sort of tribe mentality that, that they had at this time. He turns the whole thing around, and he answers the question with a story, as he often does. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, 
everything, sort of almost every word in this story is just pregnant with meaning to this original audience in Israel. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, coming down from Jerusalem probably implied that he was someone who lived in Jerusalem. That's what the, fir the first thing there. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's a very famous route. It was known as the Bloody Pass at this time. Um, so many uh, first century writers, church fathers, historians write about the Bloody Pass. It was on the, so you had to travel sort of east of Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is near the Dead Sea area. When you start moving from the elevated position of Jerusalem down to the, the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places on earth, the climate changes. So Jerusalem can be quite nice, it's hot, but, but as you start moving into the Dead Sea area, it's, it's, it's extremely hot. It's like a desert. The terrain is extremely rocky. Don't think of a flat road. This is massive hills, cliff faces, not a tree in sight, only a few shrubs on the ground, dry, loose rocks. You know, you couldn't really scramble up these cliffs with just winding little roads going through them. It was not nice terrain. And this journey was about 18 miles. And remember, this is first century. It's not like you had sort of, you know, places to stop and shop along the way. This, this was a, a rocky 18-mile journey through the blazing desert heat. It was a dangerous pass. And it's also far away from any big enough cities that, you know, you didn't have police really wandering the streets in these days too. So you could understand why uh, this was not a particularly fun road to take. But it was the, the route that everyone had to use. It was a major trading for trading caravans. Uh, military personnel would pass through here. Many pilgrims would pass through this way. However, given the fact that there were lots of caves and little sort of nooks and crannies for people to hide in, it was a well-known place for bandits and robbers to attack people. Josephus says that this road was famous for its lurking dangers, especially robbers and bandits. Uh, the writer Jerome, the church historian, uh, church father, he also mentions this quite a few times in his writings. Now, to be robbed on this road, you would probably die. Even if you weren't like, fatally wounded from the attack, because of where you are, you would probably die. The chances are you would just be pushed and you'd roll down into one of these cliffs and no one would see you for months, probably. That, that would be it. There's nowhere to stop and recuperate. There's no shade. There's no water anywhere on this road. It is just a dangerous pass. So when Jesus said that phrase, a man was traveling from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, everyone would have known and understood, well, this is, he's going down the bloody path. This is a dangerous part of the journey. And then he says in verse 31, let's read the story. And by chance a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And this little phrase, he passed by on the other side, we saw how that's uh, usually used as an allusion to this parable. Now remember, when we think of road, don't we? We have a pavement, we have a nice sort of big road, and then we have another pavement on the other side. Just get that out of your head, please. To pass by someone on this road, in and of itself, is an extremely difficult task. You probably would have had to go off the small track that was there and scrambled around the cliffs. So you can actually see that it's emphasizing the point here, you would have known, that to avoid this man, they actually had to go to quite a lot of extreme effort. So it was a big point. They'd obviously thought about it, they see it, they think about it, they look for an alternative route, so they do not have to pass by at this time. And this was a priest and a Levite the cream of the crop of society in that sense, or at least sort of the highest class ladder at that time. These are the ones who served in the temple. These were the ones who handled holy things. They were responsible in many ways for teaching the law to the people. And we know from archaeology that Jericho at the time was in fact a home of a lot of the priests. They would actually live in Jericho. 
So they, they would have been quite frequently going up and down this road. Again, just a historical context for the parable. Now, a little more background fleshes out some more meaning here. One of the debates that was going on between, uh, within Israel at this time was towards the religious leaders and the common people. This is often how uh, debates are phrased. Um, so I think when the priest and the Levite are introduced into this story, the audience at that time, they would have known that these guys are not going to be the hero because it was very common to direct religious uh, arguments against the religious leaders. Um, and again, we have similar things in the history of the Christian church. Whenever we teach about revivals, these people that we mention, like Wesley and Whitfield, they are people that sort of left the conform, the, you know, they were non-conformist, which means they left the religious hierarchy of the Anglican church usually and did their own thing. It's a, very, it's a kind of a similar analogy we have there. So when, when the, the priest and the Levite passed by the other side, many in the audience who would have sort of been more siding with the Pharisees uh, and the common man, the priests were generally Sadducees. You remember these two groups? So the priests of the temple would have been the Sadducee in class. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lot of uh, tension between the two. So when we hear this story, you can imagine the audience, this lawyer who is probably more of a Pharisee, asking the question. He would have, they would have all been nodding at this point. Ah, yes, you see, the priest and the Levite, just as we said, those Sadducees, they, they passed over, they didn't do what was required. They followed the letter of the law, because to the Sadducees, it was all about ritual purity. They were probably, um, you know, they were priests. They couldn't go near a defiled, if this man was dead, a defiled corpse. That would have put them out of service. Leviticus 21, verse 2, Speak to the, peace, the, sons, uh, the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people. They took that very seriously and very literally. And that scripture overrides all humanitarian concerns for the priest and the Levite. Now, the Pharisees wouldn't have agreed with that. They would have said that's keeping the letter of the law and denying the spirit of the law, an argument that Jesus makes elsewhere in the New Testament too. So they would have thought, ah. They would have then been expecting the hero of the story to arrive. And the hero of the story in their mind would have probably been what they call an Am Ha'aretz, which is a person of the land, quite literally, a common hero, a, common, a people's hero, a Jew, obviously, in their mind. That's, what, that's who they would have expected to be the hero, because this just follows the usual pattern of debate at this time. Religious leaders were not doing it right. It's the common people, who were, you know, the grassroots movement, that were going to show them how to do it. And this is, it's only with all of that context and background why the twist? Now, now Jesus sort of pulls the rug out from under them. He defies all cultural expectations and he introduces something into the story that according to the, everyone who is listening at this time should not be there. And it definitely should not be there. And he says those three words, but a Samaritan. I'll read the, the next. Who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And that's in that little, uh, the Samaritan felt compassion. All of those three things wouldn't have really computed with their, with their mindset at the time. I'll explain. He came and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and take care of him. And on the next day, he took out denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will uh, return and I'll repay you. So, but a Samaritan. These three words are the bombshell of the story. There was no connotation that the Samaritans were good, like we have today after 2,000 years of Christian... Uh, sort of interpretation of this parable. 
the audience would have winced. They would have become uncomfortable, and they all, even the disciples at this point would have been sort of grabbing each other like, where is he going with this? What is happening right now? That's the point of the parable. The Jews and the Samaritans had a very long and checkered history. There was no understanding of a good Samaritan. In fact, the Samaritans were considered dogs. They were half-breeds. They were idolaters. Those are terms from literature at the time. They are the very definition of an enemy, of a pagan idolater. Now, when just a little bit of history to understand this. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, 8th century BC, so we're going back a long time now. The wounds go back a long time in history between these two. The northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians conquered them and took most of them away. However, one thing they did is they brought a load of pagan people back and they intermixed with the remaining Jews in the land. And this meant that the people who came from this, who later became known as the Samaritans, they had a mixture of Jewish and pagan influence. They were sort of half-breeds, and if you could use that term, understand it's a very offensive term. It was supposed to be very offensive to, uh, to, to sort of make the point here. Their religion was mixed. In fact, Samaritans actually believed that they were the ones that, that had the true religion. And the Jews in Jerusalem had a false religious system. And the Jews in Jerusalem thought that the, the Samaritans had a false religious system. Uh, in some, in, uh, there was a mount called Mount Gerizim. It's in Shechem, which is where the Samaritans thought that you know, everything happened, not on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So they had these rival priesthood, a rival religious system, a rival mountain, and ultimately later they would have a rival temple that they built on that mountain. Now when the southern kingdom of Israel, remember they were taken a little bit later by the Babylonians, and then we've just been studying, haven't we, in Ezra, they started returning after the captivity ended, and we read about these people who put up a lot of objections to them coming back, that was the Samaritans uh, in their earliest form in that sort of sense. Now Subsequently, the Samaritans built their own temple for sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. And in fact, there are, like, I think there's like 200 Samaritans left in the world today who still do things like this on Mount Gerizim. Um, but tensions continued. You can imagine the tension that they had there until the second century BC. So we're getting quite close to the time of Christ now. Uh, there was a thing called the Maccabean Rebellion, which is where they, they threw off the, the, the Jews, rose up against the Greek overlords, and they, they took back Israel. One of the descendants of the Maccabees, they call them the Hasmoneans, they decided that they needed to deal with these Samaritans, so they took a raiding party, they went up to Mount Gerizim, and they trashed and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. And this, re this act really cemented the hatred between these two groups, and it was a raw hatred. This is not just like, oh, Samaritan, you know, oh, we don't really like them. This was raw hatred. The subsequent history for the next 100, 200 years, as we move into the New Testament period, is raid, attack, Raid, attack, retaliation, retaliation, it's like this. You can read Josephus. He reports at least four or five different events where Samaritans would attack and kill pilgrims from Galilee who were trying to make their way to Jerusalem. So, so you think about this. The Samaritans, when we read that little phrase in the scripture, they went through the Samaritan country, we read past it quickly. That's a big phrase. To go through Samaritan country was a big phrase. Jews, pilgrims had been killed by the Samaritans for doing things like that. There's a story about Samaritans scattering human bones in the Jerusalem temple to defile it, obviously. And then there's many stories about Jews forming little sort of almost like militia bands and going and attacking Samaritan cities and burning their villages down. So that is the history in a nutshell. There's a lot more than that. But just to give you a little understanding of when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, 
what that would have invoked within these people. And we see this tension even in the New Testament. You know, it's not just the, the audience, it, it's Jesus' closest disciples at this time that, that still had these deep-rooted feelings. Remember in John chapter 8, the Jew, where Jesus is in a debate, and the Jewish opponents say this to him. They say, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Just gives you a little glimpse of the attitude between these two people. Jesus, they rejected him, they didn't like him. You're a Samaritan, you have a demon. Just to put down that sort of the attitude that was associated. John chapter 4, the very famous story, the woman at the well. Do you remember that? Therefore, I'll read it, John chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, to Jesus, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? since I am a Samaritan woman, close quotes. And then in the text, you'll notice there's a little bracket, and it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a big statement there. It's so much so that the author feels he needs to put it into this book to say, Jews do not have dealings with Samaritans because of all this history that's just gone back here. And this ties in to our story. Remember I said that the, 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 gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan is placed within a particular uh, part of the story, they were on, he was on a way, he was actually, Jesus and his disciples were on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And where did they want to go? Look in chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, look at these verses, verse 51 to 56. So this is just immediately preceding the question that gives rise to this parable. And it says, I read the first verse earlier. When the days were approaching his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And then it says, he sent messages, messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans, Remember, that's a big statement. To make arrangements for him. And then it says, but they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. What that means is that they did not accept the disciples saying the Lord Messiah, Jesus, is coming through on his way down to Jerusalem because to the Samaritans, that would have meant this is a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher going to worship on Jerusalem. He's not coming through our city. And they rejected him. That, that's the hostility that they had there. But then I, I highlight this because notice the disciples' response. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Again, that's the attitude that they had. They were so incensed by this put-down of these Samaritans, Let's, look, we need to do what we do. This is sort of how it was. And Jesus says, he turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And this is where we see Jesus Christ doing what he does. He was still at this stage of breaking these cultural, uh, historical animosities that they had. And he was here for a bigger purpose. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the Samaritans were just as much included in that as the Jewish people were. And the, the parable gives rise to this sort of um, this view that we have. So their response, shall we kill them? Draw down fire from heaven. They're, they're obviously, the language there is evoking the story of Elijah, you remember, who destroyed the pagan priests on, uh, of Baal on the mountain. Um, so that's what the language is referring to, because they see themselves as the Elijahs, and the Samaritans were the pagan priests. That, that's the background to that statement there. But Jesus corrects them on that. Now, with all of that in our background, let's get back to the parable. That's all been of, by way of making you understand that the shock of the words when Jesus turns and makes the Samaritan not only the next person in the story, the Samaritan turns out to be the hero of the story. The teaching, <laughs> the way he's teaching there is just huge to these people. And it's not only that the Samaritan was the one who helped, 
the main bulk of the story, the, like, the, the last three or four verses, are all about how the Samaritan helped in ways that went above and beyond. And he sort of piles on these things. He, he, he stopped and he helped. And then the first thing it says is that it wasn't just because it was the right thing to do. It wasn't because of uh, a religious text that told him, told him he must help. It says he, he helped out of compassion. He saw the man and he felt compassion. Okay, th- this is, again, this is, this is, they just would not have liked this part of the story. Not only did he help, it cost him greatly to help. It was a big sacrifice for this man to help this wounded man on the road. Not least because you're, well, let's say you're halfway through the track, you've got nine miles back to any sort of place of habitation where you can actually get the man help, and you have to actually physically pick up a five, six-foot man and take him somewhere to help. That's, if you're on a journey, that's quite a big uh, hindrance to your journey. And you've probably seen many people just pass by, and it was not an unheard thing that if you were attacked on this road, you were done for, maybe. But he has a camel with him, or a mule, or a beast of some sort, um, and he manages to get him up on there, and he takes him, and um, just like we read in the story. He used his own resources to help. He used his own oil. He used his own wine. He stayed with him overnight when he got him, finally got him to a tavern. And he left enough money with the innkeeper to cover his costs, and then not only that, he agreed that he would actually come back and check on him. You see, Jesus is just piling on these good deeds, one after the other, to really drive this point home. The Samaritan went above and beyond in his care for this person. Now back to the narrative in Luke, or finishing up the story. He then asked another question of this theologian. So that's the parable, that's it, it's a very short. And then he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, the answer is pointed, and the answer is very obvious in that respect. It's supposed to be very obvious. For the lawyer now, to the teacher, to say anything else would only demonstrate to the crowd that he hadn't understood this, this sort of simple-esque teaching of Jesus. And he's obviously not going to say that in front of all these, all these people. So he does answer correctly. But notice first how Jesus has, even in answering this question, he's flipped it. And he subtly flipped it to make a big point. Not who is the neighbour, which is the way that the people looked and understood and tried to apply this at this time, in the sense of I want to identify a boundary of a specific group and therefore I know that I can um, sort of put all of my neighbourly activity towards that group and thus fulfil the command. That's how they would have been thinking about it. Jesus brilliantly switches this now and he puts the individual, he puts the, the onus on the individual and not on the group. And instead of saying, who is the neighbour, he says, which one proved to be a neighbour? Proved to be a neighbour. Therefore, by their actions, they were shown to be a neighbour. But it's not an outside group, it's put back to the person. And this is the correct way to think about this issue. Verse 37, the lawyer responds, and he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. He answers correctly. It was not a racial, ethnic or religious distinction at this point. But the one who proved to be a neighbour, it was proved by deeds of mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion. That's why both of those two things are highlighted in the text. It's those things that qualified the Samaritan to be the neighbour. And this is very, very crucial because they were concerned. The whole thing gives rise out of a concern about how do we apply the law. This is the context of the day. And now we have this Samaritan 
who is actually living out the law in that sense because mercy and compassion are things that are commanded in the word of God and they are reflections of the God of the Bible. James 5.11, the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Colossians 3.12, so as you have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So it's actually the Samaritan here who is fulfilling Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbour, by his acts and deeds and acts of mercy. He is the one who showed mercy. But notice, Jesus called him a Samaritan. But in the end of the story, the lawyer doesn't refer to him as a Samaritan. He just simply says, the one who showed mercy. He is now defined by his actions. And this is important. Now, Remember I said that this speech had been used in the civil rights movement a lot in the 60s. You can almost sort of see the echo of Martin Luther King's famous statement, I want them to be judged not by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. The same sort of thing, it's a loose analogy, but it comes back to the same sort of thing between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Samaritan is now the hero of the story and he's being defined by his mercy and acts of compassion. And thus by doing that, he is now the neighbour, the hero of the story. Now you see how easy it is to make these can maybe have a little bit of compassion on all those different ways that people have tried to apply this parable uh, through history. It is just an amazing story. But here's the conclusion. To understand or define the meaning of neighbour, one must first become the neighbour. That's the point of Jesus' story here. They were asking who is the neighbour, and Jesus is saying you need to become the neighbour, and then you'll understand. You see, he completely flips around everything they expected, in a very simple way, but it's a very profound way, and it changes the meaning of the story completely. You have to become the neighbour, and the way you do that is by properly fulfilling Leviticus 19.18. So he's saying to this lawyer, you quoted it rightly, but you're still trying to apply it wrongly by looking for groups and boundaries, whereas I'm saying the onus is on you, lawyer, to become the neighbour, and when you're the neighbour, you'll realise that you have to be a neighbour to everyone else. That's the point of the parable, and I think it's just an amazingly profound parable and teaching that Jesus gives in seven verses and that's the reason why we've seen this parable still being used in the halls of power all around the world today. The Torah scholar realised what was going on, I believe he understood this in some respects from this parable, Jesus was saying that every human being, whether friend or foe, is of inestimable value and must be esteemed according to the biblical command that he first quoted, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And this should be applied in the broadest possible sense, with no hint of trying to apply boundaries and group distinctions to it. Because when you fulfil it, you are the one who can go out and make it apply to everyone. It's an active faith that we have. Jesus and the Jewish people in that sense, the context was always what you can do in that sense. And you see this in the New Testament. Remember where James says, you know, faith is without works is dead. That's the point he's sort of making there. It's an amazing parable. I love it. And then just the final little bit, then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So Jesus has now taken this little audience in this small period from a place of uh, thinking they're sort of wise and theological debate and it's a good discussion. He's introduced this Samaritan. He's brought to light all of this cultural animosity that they have. He's then broken down those walls. He's flipped the onus on them, given a simpler and more uh, fulfilling understanding of how you should live with mercy and compassion as the way to reflect God's love and be a neighbour to the world. And now he issues them the command. And notice Jesus does this with a lot of his parables. They're always open-ended. 
in the sense that you, the hearer, are the ones who fulfill the final part of this parable. Go and do the same. And as we have seen, just briefly at the beginning, I could give you many more examples, the whole history of the Christian church is filled with examples of Christian saints sacrificing and going the extra mile because of this story, in obedience to the king. Quite literally, the story of the Good Samaritan has changed the world. And the command of Jesus is to first understand and then to go and do the same. And that command is spoken literally, historically, 2,000 years ago to that first Jewish audience, but through the word of God and the living inspired text, that command is still given to us today. So just as they were required to fulfill it, we are required to fulfill it. And that is the story of Christianity in one particular context. So that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I hope that's been enlightening for you. As with uh, all of Jesus' parables, I suggest you know, spend some time reading and meditating on them. The stories and the points of them are amazing. Let's just commit this time to the Lord, uh, and then we'll go our way. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this text. I thank you for everything that it teaches us. And Lord, would you just uh, inspire our hearts to fulfill your Word? Would you empower us by your Spirit? Would you turn our hearts and our minds towards you? And would we seek to be neighbours, Lord, um, in the way that you wanted us to be? We thank you, Lord. I thank you for this fellowship. I pray now that you'll bless our time uh, and our evening this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.